0: Well, as I mentioned earlier, Father Aaron is a mix. Father Aaron is away. Um, but, you know, get out of Um Actually, it's really my, my pleasure to introduce to you Susan Radicke. If you don't know her, um, that means you're probably new. Um, Susan is a lay deacon as well. She's a director of liturgy. Um, but she's also a mother of this church. No, more than anyone else, she has carried the prayers for this body in her heart for years Um, so she loves you and she loves this church and i'm really excited to hear from her um chiefly because she loves jesus and i've seen how much um, that has changed her life so we welcome susan up to to bring the, the ministry of the word today and we'll just pray for you real quickly father thank you for susan and the many gifts that you've given to her and we just praise you we're so grateful that she gives them back in jesus name release her lord for this ministry today good morning. Um, if you have been here before in this uh, last few weeks, um, you'll know that today we're wrapping up a seven-week Eastertide sermon series called Life After Death, Conversations with Jesus. And week by week, we've looked at conversations that Jesus had with various followers after his resurrection and before his ascension into heaven. And each of these conversations had the capacity to bring Jesus and his followers closer together as conversations can. Um, But I'm going to start by describing a conversation that didn't bring people together. Um, A conversation that Joel and I, my husband and I, had in the car recently. (laughs) Joel and I had been having an engrossing conversation, the good kind, um, in the car not long ago. We were coming home from the suburbs on I-90, and I asked Joel to check the traffic on his phone and see if I should exit at Foster or Lawrence, where I usually exit. He checked and said, you know, actually, it looks like it'll be quickest if we get off at Irving Park. Um, So as I'm pulling into the right lane to exit, I say something like, hey, can you help me make sure I end up on Irving Park instead of Keeler? I'm never quite sure, you know, which lane to get into. So I get off the exit light. All the lights are green, so we're really zipping along. And Joel says, just go straight across and head into that lane over there. And I said, across where? And he said, pointing across there. And I'm all like, I don't think that's right. And he says, do you see where I'm pointing? That's where we need to go. And I said, no, we can't go there. We need to go here. And long story short, um, depending on your sense of humor, you'll be either relieved or delighted or disappointed to hear that we ended up in exactly where we needed to be. Um, Everything was fine. So sometimes communication breakdown occurs because we think we're talking about the same things when we're not. Um, Joel was giving proper directions uh, at the point that, he, that I asked for them, but by the time I heard and processed what he had, was saying, um, we were already across that first street and his reference points no longer matched what I was focused on. Um, I balked at his directions because they didn't align with our destination as I knew. And even though it turned out we weren't really disagreeing at all, we still managed to have an argument about it. <laughs> Happily, Joel and I have lots of experience with car arguments. Um, and so we just took a few deep breaths, um, kind of recentered, and then we were able to resume the real conversation that we've been having. For those of us interested in following Jesus, we face a similar challenge. The conversations that we have with Jesus are conversations that take place on a journey. Conversations that take place along the way as we follow Him deeper and deeper into the kingdom of God. But all too frequently and often unexpectedly, we find ourselves balking at His guidance. Now, balk is kind of a funny word, and most often the image of balking is that of a person who's trying to lead a donkey along by a bridle, but the donkey stops and pulls back, digs in its forelegs, and refuses to move in the desired direction. That's balking. Sometimes it doesn't want to go anywhere, and sometimes it just doesn't want to go in the direction you want to take it. Now, I prefer to think of myself as a willing and even enthusiastic follower of Jesus, not a balker. but in actual truth, I balk fairly frequently. I'm going to make a bold assumption and guess that if you see yourself as a follower of Jesus, there's a chance that... You bulk every now and then. Why do we do that? Well, there are actually lots and lots of reasons that we may balk in our journey with Jesus. But today we're going to look at just a couple of them. Um, One is we balk because we can't see where Jesus is taking us. And two, sometimes we don't like the way that he's leading us to it. One way of describing the place where Jesus leads his followers is the kingdom of God. It's related to other biblical terms like heaven, eternal life, kingdom of heaven, stuff like that. Um, But don't let the religious sounding language throw you off. This concept of a future hope is common in some degree to all people. Um, Even folks who do not identify as Christ followers share share this strong attachment to the idea of a future state where things are good, or at least better. I read an article just this past week published online by an organization that declared, science is our God, Evidence is our scripture, and we want to inspire people to cooperate in the service of a just and thriving future for all. So whether you call it the kingdom of God or something else, whether you're more inclined to hope or despair when you think of a better future, um, all human beings hold, we hold in our hearts a vision for a better future, a better life, a new kingdom. And frankly, that's what makes conversations during election years so loaded and electric, when citizens agree about what precisely this kingdom should look like, what's the best way to get there, and which leader is capable of ushering in this, in this new kingdom. So we fight it out in polls and on the streets and in our homes, and in the process, that kingdom seems to slip further and further away. So what are the distinctives of the kingdom of God? What makes that kingdom, his kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, different from all the kingdoms that you and I and 7 billion other people across the planet are imagining, we hold, the ones we hold in our imaginations? Again, there are a lot of answers to that question, but we'll focus on just three. One, the kingdom of God, unlike any other kingdom, revolves around the glory of God. Secondly, the way into this kingdom leads through obedience and sacrifice. And number three, only Jesus can get us there. I'll repeat those again. The kingdom of God revolves around the glory of God. The way into the kingdom leads through obedience and sacrifice. And only Jesus can take us there. Now, if you're listening carefully, you might be able to see already why we're likely to balk when Jesus leads us into the kingdom. Um, I hope I'm not revealing too much about myself here, but for me, when I look at those first two characteristics, they sound kind of unappealing at best and threatening at worst. A kingdom that revolves around the glory of God, what does that have to do with my needs and desires? Does the kingdom of God operate on some trickle-down theory where if God, the guy at the top, gets all the glory, some of it will roll downhill and I'll get some kickback? What about obedience and sacrifice and death to self? Would that be anyone's first choice on a path to get anywhere? Well, this may not be the most, this might not be the most inspirational realities to focus on, but I believe it's extremely important to step back every now and then and acknowledge how peculiar a thing it is to follow Jesus. If we fool ourselves into thinking that following Jesus is going to be intuitive or natural or desirable all the time, which a lot of us church people tend to do, we think we're on board, so this is going to feel good, um, sooner or later we are going to encounter situations that feel unappealing or even threatening. And we'll balk and we'll be surprised. And you know what, though? Jesus does not shame us for balking. He may rebuke us. He will always continue to call us forward. But he sees and has compassion on our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to enter the kingdom of God through obedience and sacrifice, and every time we step forward again to follow him after balking, he will restore us. Now, if you already self-identify as a follower of Jesus, I'm going to assume that that's because you have already tasted of this compassion and goodness of the Lord and are sold on it. Um, If you're not a Christ follower or on the fence, this sermon is not going to be five arguments for buying into the kingdom of God. Um, But I will throw this one freebie out there. (laughs) If there is to be ever, anywhere, at any time, a kingdom that offers peace and hope and love for all its citizens, it will have to be a kingdom that is led and united by one ruler. As long as you are fighting for your kingdom and I am fighting for mine, The best we'll ever manage is a kingdom that's good for some people and bad for others. Never in thousands of years of human history has any civilization been able to usher in a kingdom that's good for everyone. And we never will as long as we work toward our own particular temporal versions of a kingdom and then fight to attain that. My special interest group will always be at odds with your special interest group. If there's ever to be a peaceful peaceable and lasting kingdom that offers true flourishing and prosperity to each and every citizen of that kingdom it will be a kingdom where all the citizens have aligned themselves with one good king not because they were coerced by a show of force or because they were bewitched by charisma but because they have willingly offered their hearts and wills to be transformed by love and esteem for him But today, we're going to focus on the experience of a fellow balker, someone who, in the course of following Jesus, was so dismayed that his fight-or-flight response triggered more than once, in fact. His name is Peter, and he was one of the very first followers of Jesus. He and a bunch of other folks literally followed Jesus around during all of his ministry, a period of about three years. If you're familiar with gospel stories, you probably know that Peter, maybe more than anyone else in scripture, was a regular person like you and me. He was not a political leader or a religious professional. He was a working class man with some good qualities and some bad qualities. He loved Jesus, but he didn't always understand him well. He risked a lot for Jesus, but he did and said the wrong things a lot, as in during their whole relationship. Now I find that very encouraging, not because it can be fun and kind of a relief to see other people screwing up for a change, um, but genuinely encouraging because we see that Jesus was crazy about Peter. He loved Peter, he knew Peter was unreliable and a coward and a braggart and he loved him. He loved him and he kept talking to him, kept having conversation after conversation And eventually, Jesus built his church upon Peter. Jesus loved Peter, and he loves you and me. We're going to look briefly at two conversations between Peter and Jesus this morning. One is the text we just heard, um, and we'll get to that one in a minute. But first, we'll look at one that's found earlier in the Gospel of John. We'll be picking up at chapter 13, verse 31, if you want to note this down or have a Bible handy. Um, this takes place right after the Last Supper, which was just before Jesus was captured and taken off to be tried and executed. Um, and just so you know, I'm skipping a total of about four verses in here just to keep the flow going. But When he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And then Jesus goes on to say, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here we have it. Jesus is initiating a conversation about he is going on ahead to open up the way to the kingdom of God for us. This kingdom, is a kingdom founded on the glory of God and the mutual glorification of the Father and the Son. There is an extraordinary act of love and obedience and sacrifice by which Jesus opened up this path for us through his own death. Something entirely new is going to happen, and Jesus is describing it. This coming kingdom of God will be marked by the glory of the love and unity and honor that have always existed between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. But now something new is happening. Jesus has always loved the Father, but never before has he had the opportunity to glorify his Father through obedient self-sacrifice. Scripture says, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. As Jesus breaks open his body in love and obedience to the Father, at the same time, he is breaking open heaven for us so that we can, if we will, follow him into this kingdom of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, you and I, with the benefit of hindsight, can kind of connect the dots and see that Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God and the glory of God. He's talking about how needful it is for him to go through death to gain access to the kingdom for us. And he's even talking explicitly about he has to come back and take us with him. All three distinctives of the kingdom are there, and we can see this because we have history and we have access to the scripture to inform our understanding. Peter doesn't. It's really not reasonable to expect that Peter could understand this. But the funny thing is, to hear Peter talk, he sure talks like he knows what's going on. Um, on the surface of it, Peter seems like he's really invested in what Jesus is saying and is all for it. Coming kingdom of God? Check. Possible death? Sure. Follow Jesus? Absolutely. Absolutely. Peter does not look like he's balking at all. If anything, he's a little too eager for the kingdom of God, right? But of course, it turns out Peter is not really tracking with Jesus at all. He can't see it yet, but in fighting for his own kingdom, Peter is balking at the kingdom of God. Peter thinks he's all in, balls to the wall for Jesus, but he's not. In fact, he's kind of scoring goals for the wrong team. Like Joel and I, Peter and Jesus are sharing in a conversation together, but they're using completely different reference points. When Peter hears Jesus talk about what's going to happen next, he, Peter, has his own personal temporal vision of the kingdom in mind. This is a kingdom where Jesus liberates the nation of Israel from Roman rule. In the kingdom Peter's invested in, the unjust social order is gonna be flipped and he and his buddies and all the folks in his group are gonna end up on top, ruling right next to King Jesus, who just happens to be a close personal friend. It's a good kingdom, for the Israelites anyway, and it's the kingdom Peter's excited about. It's the one he is willing to die for. Peter's vision of a temporal kingdom loomed so large that he couldn't see the glory of God's kingdom. And the same thing tends to be true of you and me. What does your version of the kingdom look like? What is the good life you're looking toward and longing for and maybe working toward? Sometimes my version of the kingdom is as small as getting through the day without having to do anything really hard or unpleasant. bulk at anything bigger than that They ask me to do something tough. Sometimes my kingdom vision is a little bigger. Like Peter's, it does involve social justice for oppressed people. The people I care about and who Jesus deeply cares about too. That's a good vision. But what would it be like to visualize a kingdom where the glory of God stretches itself not just across our neighborhood, or our country, or even the globe, but throughout the whole universe. And not just for a handful of months or decades, but for all eternity. We balk in following Jesus because the kingdom he leads us to is more glorious than we can imagine. We also balk in following Jesus because the death this journey requires of us is much humbler than we think it is. Listen again to what Peter says to Jesus when he's told that he can't follow Jesus just yet. He says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. In other Gospels, he's even more dramatic. Though these other guys, your other followers, all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Lord, I am ready to go to prison, both to prison and to death. And you know what? I think Peter really is ready. He is ready for the kind of death that he's thinking about. He is up for what he thinks is going on. He's not just bragging. When the soldiers come for Jesus in just a little bit, Peter is the one who draws his sword and takes a whack at the enemy. If things had played out differently, if Jesus had allowed for an all-out brawl, there's no reason to think Peter wouldn't have been happy to die. A hero's death, while striking a blow for justice and for Jesus... In the heat of battle but remember the death required of us is much humbler than we think it is a hero's death for a noble cause most of us would be thrilled to have the guts to die that kind of death later that same night Jesus explains the difference between the kingdom that Peter was looking at and the true kingdom of God and the kind of death and kind of reaction, and kind of path that it takes. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of the world. We don't usher in the kingdom of God through fighting, but through obedience and sacrifice that leads to the glory of God. We have to die the kind of death that Jesus did. Humble, obedient, marked with suffering. That's a little bit of foreshadowing. I'm to turn ahead to the next conversation to see how Peter re- when, reacts when he's invited not to fight, but to die. We'll go now to t- today's gospel passage in John 21. Now that Jesus has defeated death, It's safe for Peter to follow him into death. And now Jesus is laying out in very specific terms the death by which Peter will glorify God. In verse 18, and this is in your your, uh, order of service, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you, and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this to him, he said to him, follow me. This is not a hero's death that God is describing. It's not a death you get to face on your own terms with a sword in your hand. This is a death of helplessness, Extreme vulnerability, loss of control, and the mockery of your enemies. It's horrifying. And what is Peter's response to this invitation to a humble death? Jesus says, Follow me. And Peter says, Eh. In this conversation, the balking. Is more straightforward. We see Peter literally turns, maybe his whole body, maybe just his head, but he turns away from Jesus and seems to latch onto the first excuse for a change of subject he can find. Now, we don't know from Scripture what was going on in Peter's mind. The author of this gospel is interested in making an important point about a rumor that existed in the early church um, that Jesus would return in their lifetime. And John's gospel is very careful to point out that Jesus never made any promises like that. But I think it's safe to say that that was not what was on Peter's mind. Um, it's not his question in this moment, and it's not our question either. Whatever is going out, happening in Peter's mind and heart, he's trying to get Jesus off the subject of this horrible death and talk about someone else instead, something else. And he's rebuked for it. Essentially, Jesus tells him to... Mind his own business. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Interestingly, this is very similar to the response that Jesus will give when the disciples ask him right before he ascends into heaven, when he's going to restore Israel to political independence. This, uh, we heard this in the Acts reading this morning according to the book of Acts, the very last thing the disciples say to Jesus before he is caught up into heaven, it's not like goodbye or love you. (laughs) Instead, they're asking one more time, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Well, Jesus doesn't say yes. He doesn't say no. He basically said that's not your business. Your liberation is not your business. That is God the Father's business. These fixations that we have with our lesser kingdoms are hard to shake. We are naturally obsessed with efforts to fulfill our hopes and dreams. And the nobler they are, the more attached we are to them. But the fulfillment of these hopes and dreams is not our business. It's God's business. He is the only one who can see how and when all the needs and desires of all the peoples of his kingdom will come together in an eternity that revolves around the glory of God. It is his business to bring that kingdom in due time. Our needs and concerns are his business. We don't have to fight for them for ourselves. Our true business is so much smaller and so much simpler. Our business is to follow Jesus step by step. The assurance of Jesus himself in the book of Matthew is that when we seek first the kingdom of God, everything we need will be added to us. Brothers and sisters, if we are ever to find ourselves in the kingdom of God, now in this lifetime and after our physical deaths, we must follow Jesus. It helps to recognize that the kingdom of God is more glorious than we think. And it helps to remember that the death required of us is humbler than we think. But it's no use simply telling ourselves we ought to be more excited about the glory of God or telling ourselves we ought to look for that humbler death. Only Jesus can reveal these truths to us in a way that will make any difference for us. And he does this one conversation at a time. As active participants in these conversations with Jesus, though, there are some changes that we can make in how we talk with Jesus. Here are some meaningful ways to upgrade the quality of our conversations with Jesus, Um, and they're all connected. Um, The first one is simple, but kind of unpleasant to hear. Um, It's to stop arguing with Jesus. If he's asking you to do something, and you realize that you're giving him pushback, stop. Stop arguing, take his hand, and follow him. Um, And an awesome place to start with this is not at the level of discussion or obedience around grand hopes and plans and big decisions that you may have, but to start with any really concrete, specific commands that Jesus has given that you can move on now. Um, I'm going to highlight some moral issues, moral commands, but please note... This really has nothing to do with anxiety over abstract morality or concerns about trying to be a good person. When we talk about following Jesus, we are talking about obedience. But when we're talking about obedience to Jesus, we are actually talking about intimacy and getting closer to Him. Just as the love of Jesus for His Father found fullest expression in obedience, so our love for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is realized It is made real in our obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commands. From anyone else you will ever meet, this is going to be manipulative. But this is Jesus. (laughs) This is far from easy, but it's pretty straightforward. So pick something obvious. Some area where you know Jesus has spoken clearly in scripture and which he is also speaking about with you in real time tell him that you'd like to follow now then take his hand and get ready to let him lead you through the death that will follow that sin is our way of balking at the type of death that jesus is calling us to and if you're ready to stop arguing you will need to take his hand and let him lead you through the pain of death that leads to the glory of the kingdom so maybe it's time to stop justifying how you use your words Do you repeatedly find yourself indulging in complaints um, about your boss or your neighbor or gossip about uh, friends or classmates? Do you get sarcastic with the people you live with or screech at any children that may live in your home with you? (laughs) Sit down with him and take his hand and ask him to lead you through whatever kind of humble death you are avoiding when you use your words the way you do. Maybe you already know better than to get romantically attached to someone who's off-limits for you. You know they're off-limits, but you've been maybe giving Jesus a sad story about how this might be your last shot at long-term companionship or how your spouse doesn't really understand you. Stop rationalizing. Ask for help. Break off the attachment. Take Jesus by the hand and let him lead you through the humble death that is loneliness and self-denial. I'll tell you about what changing the conversation looked like for me recently. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I became aware that I was carrying resentment toward a couple of people who had hurt me. I was angry. I had made some half-hearted swipes in the general direction of forgiveness, but I was very aware that I had a hard core of resentment that I was not willing to let go. I knew it wasn't right, it's not Christian, it's not helpful, um, but I felt stuck. When I finally agreed to have a conversation with God, here's how it played out. I said, God, there is this hard rock of resentment lying in the soft field of my soul, but I'm I'm not ready to give it up. If I let go of it, I'm going to feel too vulnerable without it. I'm not really ready to do that. I'm not willing. And then I went on. I said, however, I'm officially giving you permission to deal with it. You have my explicit permission to take it away. And then I found myself imagining him pouring warm water over the hard lump. If you can stick with me, this is where it sort of switches analogies. Imagine that hard lump is like a giant piece of hard candy, like a huge, craggy, Jolly Rancher. Um, And as he pours warm water over it, it gradually gets smaller and smaller. And I have to say, I was genuinely surprised that God did what he did. We had that conversation once. I left him alone to do his thing. And then when I checked back in with myself emotionally about these people and these situations, I was surprised to find that the resentment was pretty much gone. I know there's some residual maintenance that I need to do in, in one of these relationships, but honestly, by and large, Jesus took care of it for me. Jesus knows we are so weak, and he is so kind. Another aspect of changing the conversation involves modifying how we pray and what we ask for. Peter is our model here again. It's not a cautionary tale this time. Uh, This time we can see how Peter changed the conversations he had with Jesus in a beautiful way. Um, If you have an ink and paper Bible, you can look at this last Balkan conversation we looked at, flip literally one or two pages, and read in the book of Acts how Peter and the other disciples encountered persecution and threats from the same folks who killed Jesus. These are the people that could take Peter to die that horrible, horrifying death. But this time, the disciples, including Peter, doesn't ask Jesus to come back down from heaven and establish the nation of Israel. He doesn't even ask for protection or deliverance. You can read this in Acts chapter 4. He prays for boldness. Boldness to continue following. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your words with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Peter now has his sights firmly upon Jesus and the glory of God, and he prays for grace to simply keep on walking with Jesus, even if it leads to ignominious death. And how did God respond to his request? And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Whenever you encounter any suffering, any type of suffering, but especially the suffering that you encounter as a result of obedience and self-denial, pray that God would be glorified in your suffering. Ask that he would come near, bind up your wounds, and take your suffering onto himself. See what he does. Experiment with that type of prayer, that type of conversation. And take courage from the reality that our hearts and wills do grow more and more like Jesus the longer we follow him. Peter, after this amazing prayer, later on had another conversation with Jesus where there's some argument in a vision where, Peter, or where God was explaining to Peter that the kingdom of God is not just for the Jews but for the Gentiles. Jesus will have conversation after conversation with us. Praise God. (laughs) Um, I want to close with some final words from our friend Peter. Um, About 30 years after the conversations that we've been reading about now, Peter writes these words to churches scattered around the Middle East, and he wrote them to you and me also. Hear the word of the Lord to you this day. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fire trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <coughs> Our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed on page 11. We confess it together. We believe in one.